You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Whenever it comes to playing board games, and I know this to be the case for some of you, I play board games with you, you don't need to encourage cheating often, sure you don't. It causes many an argument, maybe at different times of the year. And it's not a thing you would think you would encourage in, in any kind of way of life, but in a board game as well. But Monopoly, and well, Monopoly does get tense at the best of times, but here they've released an addition in recent years that encourages cheating. You get rewarded for, for cheating. I, I have no idea how it works. I only know how to cheat in the normal game. Um, but it, it, it's a strange thing to, to be at. And as we look at Luke chapter 16, it seems strange, doesn't it, as we read it, because of, of verse 8. It seems although Jesus is saying it's okay to, to cheat or, or to, to be dishonest. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. But it might be problematic, but hopefully it'll not be by the time we finish today, because although Jesus seems to be suggesting a pattern of life that's dishonest, as a you might think in first reading of it, we'll discover that Jesus is not promoting the dishonest manager, but he's rather encouraging people to look after them, look after their money intelligently. So as we look at this parable, it's important to, to notice who Jesus is speaking to, isn't it? So if you just flick back to, or look back to, to chapter 14, Jesus gives the parable of the great banquet, and where is he there he's at a prominent Pharisee's house and he's saying to them you've been given an invitation would you not respond would you not come and then in 25 of chapter 14 verse 25 uh, Jesus has large crowds following him they're following Jesus and Jesus tells them you need to understand what it means to really follow me and then again in, in chapter 12 in verse 22 the passage about not needing to worry about what the tomorrow brings, about being rest, ready for action. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples. And here in chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus is talking to his people, his disciples, his followers. So as we consider this chapter together, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parable first, and then we're going to draw an application from the parable and the commentary that Jesus gives afterwards. So, uh, as you can imagine, in, in many walks of life, even today, if you are of considerable wealth, if you're in, in business even in Jesus' day, and you had lots of things to look after, you would put a man in charge of all what you had, a manager, to oversee transactions, to chase after people owing you money, to look after the broker deals and agreements that uh, they would act on behalf of you, as it were. And while anyone would want a manager that would do their job well, a manager that's going to look after what he has and a manager that's going to bring in money. But what we discover in this example Jesus gives, this parable, that the manager is not doing a good job. First one, they're told that we hear that he's wasting the, the, the master's possessions. And what this leads to is the master being sacked. It's, and it's fair to assume that since the manager was working for a rich man, his wage was probably reasonably healthy. He had maybe oversight over others. He clearly had great responsibility over this master's uh, stuff possessions. And he manager, well-paid, quite possibly, and, well, he's going to be reasonably well-off. But here, once he's sacked, 
There's no severance pay, no compensation, no early retirement scheme. This means that there's going to be nothing going into this manager's pocket. Nothing. Because this manager, if he's known to be wasting possessions, if he's known to be useless, well, would you hire him? If he has knowledge about he's going to waste everything that is given to him, no one's going to want him. And the manager seems to know the predicament he's in, and he also knows his abilities and limitations. Look at verse 3. He's talking to himself. He's saying, what shall I do now? He knows he's nothing else he can do. My master is taking away my job, and he knows I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do any manual labor tasks. I'm only good at you know, directing people what to do. And he says, I'm ashamed to beg. I'm too proud to go sit in the street and to get, collect money. He knows that this is a terrible place to be in. But as he's chatting to himself, as he's internally going through the options in his mind, it's almost as if, you know, in the cartoon, the light bulb comes on. That seems what happens in verse 4. It's like a eureka moment. He's a plan that comes to mind, a plan that will result in others welcoming in, him in. This is what he's saying in verse 4. I know what I'll do that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me. And what is this scheme? What is this plan? Well, he's going to call into the people that owe his master money. You see that in verses, verse 6 and 7? So just imagine with me, just for a moment, your, your bank or your mortgage lender or broker, whatever, whatever it is, and they wrap your door tomorrow morning, and they have all the paperwork done, uh, and your solicitor has checked it through, and they say, if you sign here, it's a one-time offer only, we can half it. We can half your mortgage right here and now. Are you going to take it on? Yeah, if it's looking good, you probably will, wouldn't you? And this is what the, the manager is going to do before he's sacked. He's going to, to go to people's houses, knock on their door and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to reduce your debt. So imagine with me that that happens to you. But then a couple of weeks later, you get a rap on the door and they say, I've been sacked. I've lost my job. Can you do something for me? Can you give me a favor? Maybe a place to say or, or a meal. You might look after them, mightn't you? So how much more now in Jesus' time? Because Jesus gives two examples. In verse 6, the man halves the debt. Uh, so 150 trees or so, three years' wages uh, taken off it. In verse 7, it's 20%, but it's worth eight years. They, he discounts their debt so that the people would be indebted to him. He's reducing their credit so that he would be building up credit in their minds and hearts that he would return would have favor in their eyes. He's sneaky, he's sly, he's shrewd, he's clever. And sometimes when that kind of thing happens, you can't just not stop yourself, have a wee smile or a chuckle, which seems to be why the, the dishonest manager is praised. In verse 8, that the manager commended what he had done. Uh, I have a friend who studied law at university, and he needed a, a particular textbook for his duration of his course, and it's hundreds of pounds, and that, that's second hand. But it's in the library, and you know you go to the library, two weeks, say, but every day it's late, it's a 50p fine, and it, maxed, it maxes out at 60 quid, and if you lose the book, you have to pay at that point 60 quid for the book. What do you think my mate did? He lost the book. He saved hundreds of pounds, and in some ways we know that is really wrong, but we admire the, the cleverness behind it, don't we? And here that is what this, this master is doing. He realizes what the ex-manager has done, and he almost is smiling and shaking his head. 
he knows he's been got. He knows he's been outwitted. And it's almost as if he's tipping the hat to the man saying, fair play. You figured out a way how to provide yourself for a fu- with a future without even having a job. And in Scripture, there are different occasions where people act cleverly, isn't there? We think of them, maybe the midwives in Egypt, or Joshua uh, and Rahab sending away the spies, or Esther uh, building up all those feasts to get what she wanted. And the master knows at this point there's nothing he can do about it, but all he can do is just admire the cleverness of it, the shrewdness of it. And Jesus is using this parable not to teach us to be dishonest, but he's teaching us that as God's people, we must be shrewd with what we have. We must be shrewd with what we have. Not, not dishonest, not lies or manipulation, but to be shrewd, to be clever and astute and wise. So in the second half of verse 8, Jesus is saying that the, the people that belong to the world, the people of the world, they're able through the values of the world to get what they want. They're able to plan and to build a future for themselves. God's people, on the other hand, we fail to see how we can use what we have, the things of this world, the money, wealth, and so on, how we can use what we have in the world as a spiritual advantage. As God's people, we fail to see what we have now, to, we fail to be able to see how to use it wisely as a spiritual advantage. The citizens of the world know to take care of their needs, to, to build up enough for the future. Maybe it is to make early retirement for many folks. But Jesus wants his followers to behave wisely, not to the standards of the world, but to the standards of his kingdom. And Jesus wants us to be wise, to be shrewd with what we have, with our wealth, with the responsibilities that we have, with the talents, with the brain power that we've been gifted it. We need to be shrewd, wise, learning to use what we have now for God's glory and for the benefit of God's people. Sinclair Ferguson says that we need to have spiritual street smarts. As humans, we have street smarts to navigate through the world, but we need to have spiritual street smarts. We need to consider how we can use what we have, our earthly resources, for God's glory, for God's people. Think of ways that will benefit God's people. So every year, every couple of years, doesn't BBC have their mission campaigns, whatever it is, comic relief or something, and people pump their money into it, and they do a good work. They provide education. They build wells. They build schools. They do all kinds of good things. But it's good things for the present, isn't it? Wouldn't we be best, for example, sending our money to a Christian charity that does those things, but is more concerned about the eternal consequences of the folk? Yes, all those charities do your present good, but it's all a false hope. It needs to be eternal focus, doesn't it? What is it that the world needs to advance the gospel? What is it that Michael Felt needs? Because people in this world are clever. They will navigate and manipulate. They will play the system. They look for ways to save or to get what they want. But as God's people, we need to be shrewd, wise, innovative. Because although money can hinder our Christian walk, money can also be used for God's purposes. It can aid discipleship. 
It can encourage outreach and send people off to mission. It can do so much. We need to be using what we have now, not just for the present, but for things that will have eternal consequences. We need to act shrewdly because of eternity. Eternity seems so far away. It's so distant that we forget about it. It's not the case. But as a Christian, we need to bring that eternal destiny, those riches in heaven, right to the forefront of our minds to, to navigate through life, that we understand in general terms that with what God has given me, my wealth, my material wealth, the money that I have, the mental ability, the privilege that I find myself on work, the talents that I have, the people I know, the spheres that I move about in, the people I manage in my work, how am I going to employ all that God has given me? Not just for the present, but for eternal good. Because Jesus says, the things of this world are going to go. Look at verse 9. Jesus it says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it is gone, it's not if, it's when. When it is gone, as God's people, we must use money for spiritual purposes. We need to do it as wisely as the people of the world use it for their material aims. We need to have that eternal treasures in heaven focus. This worldly wealth. And isn't it a strange thing that Jesus says, isn't it? Verse 9-2, he glanced over it. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. You know, isn't there you know, examples of, of pop stars and stuff? You know, they were buskers in the street. They had no mates. And now they've made it, and they've got all the mates in the world. You know, they, they're really popular. And that's not what Jesus is getting at. But isn't that the case where if you have lots of money, you tend to have more friends, or it seems to be that way? But what because you can have bigger parties and stuff. What Jesus is saying is, as Christians, your wealth, use it for my glory, for my people, and you will have friends. Where are those friends going to be? You will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We can use what we have on earth for spiritual blessings, so that whenever we enter eternity, we will be met with friends people who have benefited from what we have given, who have benefited from our prayers, people who are going to welcome us there. We will make friends forever when money disappears. There's going to be friends welcoming us into the kingdom of heaven. And as we give, as we use our money wisely, as the gospel goes out and people respond, as they enter eternity, there's friends that are going to outlive our wealth. And as we're greeted by friends, there's one in particular friend that will greet us, isn't there? Jesus. Jesus, our friend who, who came down for us, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we want all nations to trust. It's our giving of ourselves, whatever we have for his glory, he sees. He will welcome us in as good and faithful servants. Let us be shrewd and faithful in using what we have for God's glory and for the benefit of God's people. And this idea of faithfulness with money, this theme of faithfulness that Jesus continues with in, in the next seven or eight verses, that God's people must be faithful. Faithful with their money, but in different areas too. 
And if we could have all three up at the same time, Fred, just for now, that we as God's people must be faithful in character. God's people must be faithful to God's word. And then also in our relationships. So if you look at, at verse 10 with me, uh, Jesus is saying, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And then vice versa. If they can't be trusted with a little, how on earth are you going to trust them with a lot? Jesus said we must have a faithful character in the little things and the big things. So if you confide in someone and you say, it mightn't be that big of a deal, but you say, don't, don't, don't share that with anyone, would you? But what they do is they go and tell someone else because they think it's only a little thing. Can you trust that person with the bigger thing? It's harder, isn't it? And when it comes to money as well, there's lots of examples through a lottery winners who have had very little. They struggle to deal with a little, but once they get the jackpot, whatever it is, they have all this money. How long does it take for them to go back down to zero? Often very quick. Why? Because there's a sense in which they couldn't handle a little, so they couldn't handle a lot. And we need to have a faithful character in all that we do, in our conversations, and how we we live as Christians. So if you are head of your house, if you're the, the, the man of the home, and your family, are, are, you're not willing to discipline your family, and your house is in chaos, how in that little thing could you be a leader in the church? You couldn't, that's one of the things that Timothy outli- or Paul outlines in Timothy. Or as a student, or a, 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 as a young person, if you can't keep up with the little often the teacher will know that you won't be able to cope with the lot. Uh, And that is the case. We need to be able to be dealing faithfully in our character through our conversations that we have, through our honesty, as Jesus is talking about. If we're dishonest with a little, we can be sure we're going to be dishonest a whole lot too. We need to be faithful in character as a Christian in the small and the big. And that includes being faithful to God's word very briefly in verses 16 and 17. God's word continues. Christ came. Christ fulfills the law. But we do not conclude that the law is no longer longer relevant. God's word is still relevant. God's word is important and we need to be faithful to it. Uh, There's not a a jot, at least stroke of a pen or a drop of the law has disappeared. It's all still there. It's all still for us to be faithful to. But we know we are not faithful to it. And that's why we have Jesus as our friend because he was utterly faithful that we can't enter glory but we still must be faithful to God's word and the example that Jesus gives is being faithful in our relationships see in Jesus day there's a bit like today there's divorce was rife divorce was common the, the Jews had been using Deuteronomy 24 you can look that up later as grounds to allow divorce for anything from literally like burning your dinner you could get a divorce. Or if you saw a younger person, you, you could go for it and you ask for a divorce. A man would get it. And that's what's happening. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Forget about Deuteronomy 24. Let me take you back to Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And we are to be faithful in our marriages. That there is to be no divorce. It's a lifelong union. It's a stewardship. See, although we live in a fallen world, some marriages will break down for all kinds of reasons. God's intention, as God's people, our intention 
for it to be lifelong. He wants us to be faithful and steward that relationship. How much? Well, it's reflected in Christ's love and care for his bride, the church. That's how much effort and care goes into our marriages, into our relationships, and we must be faithful. So why? Why would you be sending Snapchats to somebody else's wife? Why would you text a single girl or a married one or ask them out for coffee? Why would you constantly be going to the same person for lunch from work? What are you doing? We need to be faithful in our relationships. If you're not married, going out, not a Christian, it's a no-goer. We need to be faithful to God's word. And marriage is just one example of that. Don't convince yourself that you're going to be faithful to God, and not, uh, uh, but show an unfaithfulness or a dishonesty in your marriage or relationships. We must be faithful in our relationships. Marriage is yes, but also in our relationships at home. Between siblings, parents and children, in the church, we are united together in Christ. There's no dividing barrier. We need to be faithful in our relationships, faithful in our work or in the community and how we treat others in our workplace. We need to be faithful in relationships because those relationships, they demonstrate us as God's servants. We must be faithful. Because we discover, don't we, in verse 13, that God's people cannot serve two masters. Nobody can serve two masters. Money is powerful and seductive, isn't it? We can be tempted to live our lives for it. Why? Because money can purchase us so much. Money can get me what I want to give me, make me happy tomorrow. It can give me safety and security. It can buy the, the nicest food, the best cars, the comfiest sofa, the best holidays, the nicest clothes, the house of my dreams. Money gives safety, security, and opportunities to experience happiness. We get to do what, what we want with it, and that is why, with this enticement, it reels us in of happiness, safety, and security. It reels us in because we think that the present reality of having safety, the present reality of having security, the present reality of having happiness, because it's at our fingertips, it seems much more real to us, and we forget about Jesus. Jesus is saying that the great competitor in your heart between me is money, is stuff. And it causes us to ask the question, what are, 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 if you're working, what are you breaking your back at work for? To provide for you and your family? Yes, that is so important. Or is the reality of money choking your joy because your head's down and your eyes are off Jesus? It's possible to be a slave to it, to be constantly providing. And as Jesus says this, you can't serve two masters. Look at the Pharisees in verse 14. It's just a constant heartbreak as you look at them. They know so much, yet so little. How do they respond? They sneer. They sneer in the face of God. They have all this material wealth, but they have no room to serve the Lord. And what has happened is that they no longer are devoted to God, but they despise God. That is what Jesus says. God is not their master. And although Jesus is talking about money, and our need to give and use it wisely, of course we need it. But our bank balances are a practical example of how we are following Jesus. 
we can give what we want, we can say what we like, but just like here, it is the Lord who sees our heart. Jesus is able to see the hearts of the Pharisees, and Jesus sees my heart and my giving. Jesus sees your heart. He knows what we love and what we serve. But of course, God is not really after our money. It's an important indicator of where our hearts are at, yes. But God is after our hearts. That is what Jesus is saying there. You can't love or serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. What God wants is our hearts. The word here used for devoted is like a really strong attachment, like not letting go. You know, like when a dog gets a bone in their jaws locked or something, like not letting go. Is that us with money? Or is that us with God? Is that us with our money and possessions? Or is it Jesus? What really determines if we are faithful or dishonest is in who we serve. Why serve Jesus? Why should we bother? Why should we bother to give? Why would you need to listen to me today? Why should I serve Jesus? Why can I not have feet in both camps? Why can I not be like a double agent and let on? We serve Jesus because he wants all of our heart because he left the riches of heaven. He left the riches of heaven to come down to earth. Born in that stable, yes, a, 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 a life of poverty compared to the riches of heaven and the riches of the world. And he died. He suffered. He rose from the grave so that we would experience his eternal riches. Riches that will never spoil or fade. Money will disappear. We will all die. But God's eternal riches last forever. Let us be people who serve the Lord with our whole hearts. Let's loosen our grip on what we have. And let's use it for God's glory and for the blessing of his people. Let's pray.